That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and a website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm coming to you today from Washington, D.C. The notorious Yumi, Jeremy Goldcorn is at home in Nashville, Tennessee, and joins us from there. How are you, Jeremy? Very well, indeed. It's a beautiful, steamy late summer day here in Nashville, which uh, the locals complain about, but I think is the best weather ever. I can't imagine why you could like that, but... Uh, we're kind of celebrating the fact that the end of summer is nigh. Labor Day is upon us. and It's terrible. Uh, it's a tragedy. <laughs> I, I could do with another six months of this. <laughs> wow. I, I have no idea. I, I don't understand you. Uh, but, Jeremy, for 20 years, both of us lived in the global center of the counterfeit, the, the knockoff, the ersatz, the shanjai. The, for, the fraud, the fake. You forgot some words. Yeah, sure. The fraudulent, the fake. The, I, I, I distinctly recall seeing you in Baifeng's old bar on Hohai, uh, sporting one of those dodgy silk market North Face jackets sometime around the turn of the millennium. <laughs> guilty? Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, actually, guilty, no. So. That, that actually is a real North Face jacket. It was just very dirty. Uh-huh. Sure, 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 sure. Well, of course, it was also, you know, clothing and then handbags and eyewear and pharmaceuticals and then by you know about 2009 or so it was of course smartphones and there's even that fake apple store right that's right an entire apple store in yunnan somewhere that was uh, completely fake and and countless other things too many other examples really really to mention uh, i mean fake business people you know the service of renting out foreigners to serve as fake ceos um, <laughs> uh, lamb skewers kebabs that were actually made of rat meat Pretty much anything you could fake uh, is faked. Cigarettes, Viagra. <laughs> you know, actually, cigarettes, not so much, as, as it turns out. I talked to this guy at Philip Morris who told me that you basically can't find counterfeit. You find lots of smuggled, but almost no counterfeit Marlboros. It's very strange. Now, I asked him why that was, and he explained something about how the economics work. But it turns out it's just not worthwhile to try to fake them. Anyway. Today on Seneca, we are talking about the culture of Shanghai and how the whole discourse around it and related issues of you know knockoffs and fakes and counterfeiting and intellectual property, how, how that's all evolved over the last few decades. So we're delighted to be joined here in Washington by Fan Yang, who is assistant professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, or UMBC. She has a new book out called Faked in China, Nation Branding, Counterfeit Culture, and Globalization. And she's here to talk about her work. The book is an exploration of the ways in which China has sought to come to terms with a global IPR regime in a time of really far-reaching globalization. It's an, it's an era sort of best symbolized by China's accession to the WTO, so she calls it in the era of the WTO. Uh, but it's an era to which China really came woefully underpowered 
That's because China came without the chips that the developed world insists the game be played with. It's brands, which is something really insubstantial and weak and subject to you know subversion or appropriation by Chinese actors, even as you know some Chinese actors have strived to create Chinese equivalents. Jeremy, you remember what it was like. Well, brands, as, as, as I used to theorize, prior to like 1990, consisted always of name of an animal and a color, or a color, and so it was like white rabbit, or black cat, or goldfish, <laughs> or uh, it was white elephant batteries. You remember those days, right, Jeremy? Indeed. <laughs> the good old brands uh, anyway uh, some Chinese actors like try to play the game and win it I, I'm I'm holding in my hand right now an iGo battery charger actually from you remember that guy Feng Jun I do yeah one of those kind of uh, entrepreneurial characters uh, uh, sort of late 90s early 2000s very charismatic guy who started off uh, selling uh, knockoff electronics in Zhongguansun in Beijing I believe exactly well I mean he sort of got branding but uh, so the, he, he's one of these guys who's trying to you know play it to win it but these there's other people who reject it entirely and embrace that kind of defiant Shanghai spirit in any case attitudes toward the phenomenon have evolved and we're very happy to have someone here to help sort through how things have changed. So, Fan Yang, welcome to Seneca, and uh, I hope I haven't too badly mischaracterized your book. Not at all. Hi, Kaiser. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be here. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Well, actually, uh, as you and Jeremy both know, China is a place of contradiction. Yeah. And some of the ways that you've described my project really point to those kind of contradictions uh, emanating from fakes or brands. And so that's something that I would like to capture in the book, which is um, this notion of brands um, and how it has shaped how the government or the people think about the nation. And as you pointed out, how China encounters globalization. Well, globalization is another process that also characterized by contradiction. So I thought looking at brands and counterfeits would be a really good way to think about these contradictory encounters. So that's sort of the impetus for the book. Can you tell us a little bit about your own personal background? You're, you're from Hangzhou, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was born in Hangzhou, but I actually grew up in different parts of China. Uh, my parents met in Ningxia province in Yinchuan. Wow. Yeah, that's where they were part of the Sandown Youth. Uh, uh, so, but I traveled back and forth between Ningxia and Hangzhou as a baby, and um, I still know one line in Ningxia Hua. I think, "Pingguo uh, <laughs> hao It's like apple like, is no, tasty. Pingguo hao just said with that tone. Yeah, but I don't really know much else. Yeah, but my mom got a position later in Shenzhen University. So that's where I went as a nine-year-old, and I spent the next 10 years there growing up in Shenzhen, so watching lots of Hong Kong television, learning Cantonese and English at the same time. And then after that, I went to Shanghai for undergrad before coming to the States mm -hmm. for grad school. And, and, and how did you get interested in this area, I mean, in writing specifically about Shanghai? Yeah, well, thinking I mean, cause, back, cause of Shenzhen. <laughs> exactly, Shenzhen is sort of the origin uh, or place of origin for Shanghai films or Shanghai film sector or Shanghai culture, if you will. But of course, Hangzhou is now home to Alibaba. <laughs> and I don't know Jack Ma personally, but I you do know, know <laughs> quite a few people who uh, worked at Tencent, Teng Xun, uh -huh. uh, who started WeChat, which most of us use. Uh, so... I think maybe it's simply fate that I have to 
write something about fake in China, related mm. to made in China and created in China. Right, so um, we read a lot about fakes and counterfeits from China. I mean, it comes up every time there's a discussion about like Alibaba, which you mentioned, and especially Taobao. It's been an issue even before Charlene Varshevsky famously tried <laughs> to sneak some counterfeit beanie babies out yeah. of the country and got <laughs> caught. Isn't it just the case that developing countries with weak IP regimes will inevitably go to counterfeiting? I mean, is, is, isn't it just sort of a structural thing? Or does your book bring kind of different perspectives to, to this discussion? Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned IP struggles seem to be pandemic in developing countries. So uh-huh. that brings up the question, do we want to think about China as part of the developing world? Well, in a way, I'm kind of arguing that China in some ways is simultaneously striving to join the first world by, say, the mechanism of nation branding, but at the same, at the same time also struggling with lots of third world problems, faking sure. being one of them. And um, I think that my book intervenes in the discussion of uh, using um, kind of by using IP struggles as a lens to look at China's cultural transformation, which is, of course, entangled in economic, political, social processes. And um, more specifically, I think this focus on fake also kind of allows us to complicate this narrative of economic rise, and specifically through cultural terms. That's kind of what I intend to do. Do you think you could sketch out the the organization of the book and explain perhaps Mm -hmm. why you decided to take that particular approach? Sure. After laying out some theoretical framework in the introduction, which we as academics are expected to do, uh, I first discussed the rise of set of nation branding policies after 2001. That's what the year that China joined the WTO and also got Won the Olympics. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so these set of policies uh, were aiming to upgrade China into a um, not just a manufacturer of global brands, but into a creator of its own IPR eligible brands. And uh, so these policies are kind of captured by the idea of from made in China to created in China. Um, So from there, I look at a few counterfeit cultural artifacts that in many ways contest this imagined trajectory propagated by state or state entities. And uh, these artifacts include um, the media discourse on Shanghai, which you just mentioned, and a pirate film uh, called Crazy Stone from Feng Kuang Shi Tao. And then also the silk market uh, in Beijing, Xiu Shui Jie, some Uh of you also know in the audience as well. Uh, So in the conclusion, I uh, look at the relatively new discourse of the China dream or the Chinese dream, particularly in relation to this film called American Dreams in China, Zhongguo He Huo Ren. And so that's sort of the outline of the book. And as you can see, my approach to culture is perhaps a little different from, say, those scholars trained in literary studies. That is, I've kind of intentionally moved away from the more elite sites of cultural production. So whether it's uh, art or literature, which lots of people have written about, but I kind of focus a little more on the popular. And it's about, well, to me, culture, it really is about meaning making. And so I'm kind of interested in this moment looking at just the fact that so many more people are able to join in the process of 
culture making, and in part that has to do with rise of new media and sure, the access sure. to new communication technologies from the internet to the mobile phones. And so that's m- what my approach is coming from. I'm from a cultural studies um, so, background. So the, the, yeah. the word at the very heart of your book is this word Shanghai, yeah. and it's really the whole discourse around Shanghai that your book focuses on. So let's let's first define Shanghai <laughs> and, and talk a bit about where this word came from and how sure. it got popularized. Mm-hmm. And, and and what it includes in a strict sense, what it what it connotes, because mm-hmm. there's you know kind of a a valence around it, maybe even a moral valence around this mm-hmm. around this this word. Yeah, when I think of a Chinese title or translation for the book, I like to think of it as "Zhongguo Beijiazhao." For Shanghai, definitely would be the equivalence of counterfeit culture. Another word that I use in the、mm-hmm. subtitle of the book, and that's because there's a sense of countering in both terms. Counterfeit、uh. means countermade, and Shanghai also has that connotation. Right, but just back to scoff law.、Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like but back to your to,、uh, yeah. kind of really uh, uh, point of returning to the original meaning. Of、uh, course, the word is made up of two characters: Shan referring to mountain, and Jai is fortress.、Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was funny because I went to Hangzhou not too long ago,、mm-hmm. and I saw a restaurant sign that says "Awa Shanghai" and something like "Chuan Guo Shou Chuang Yuan Sheng Tai Shanghai Zhu Ti Chan Ting." And I had to remind myself,、uh, "Oh, this is actually the, the original meaning,、right. the indigenous mountain food that is being highlighted there, rather than the Shanghai that I talk about in the book."、Uh, but anyway, well, it's when And it gets to the connotation. That's when it gets really interesting. And、uh, some of the Chinese、uh, literary people will probably think of Shuihu water margins,、right. um, and、uh, or thinking about like the Maoist guerrilla warfare being sort of these.、Uh, Countering forces, really, yeah. yeah, anti-establishment, against, yeah, right. yeah. So, so that's the countering notion、uh, that I'm really intrigued by. And、um, in the Chinese press, as you know, it pretty much became a catch-all phrase for all things fake. Um, sorry, could, could I could I just interrupt and、uh, clarify just a、of、little、course. bit more、um, the original meaning of Shanghai? So, I mean, we're talking about a mountain fortress that one would think is inhabited by rebellious. People who don't obey、yep. the government—is that correct? You know, if, <laughs> if you have to summarize it in a short sentence,、mm-hmm. yeah, for sure.、Yep. Okay, and this—this this is actually the term.、Uh, well, all—all all the study that I kind of incorporated was coming from how the Chinese press discussed, say, Shanghai economy and Shanghai culture, and、uh, so that—that's、uh, some of the references that they are making are precisely coming from, say. Shuihu、uh, and all those other historic、um, artifacts. Shuihu,、so. for those of you who haven't read China's four great novels, Shuihu it tells a story about 108 kind of、uh, bandits, I guess we call them, <laughs>、yep. who live on Liangshan and、uh, you know in, in different constellations of contest and alliance. But they're all kind of it's a Robin Hood like story, right? These are these are kind of lovable rascals, right? <laughs> And the English—it's usually rendered in English as water margin, right? right. Water It, margins.、Uh, isn't there a funnier English translation? Outlaws、too? of the Marsh, I guess, is the other one. Outlaws of the Marsh and, and all men are brothers. And、um, also something like a hundred men and one woman, or something like that. I've <laughs> not entirely sure. 
Jeremy mentioned that there were uh, all kinds of Shanghai artifacts or personalities, if you will. And some of you might remember there's Jay Chou, Shanghai Jay Chou,、uh, right. Shanghai Zhou Jielun, and even there was a Shanghai Chunwan. Oh yeah, yeah.、Okay, explain that. There's the Shanghai Chunwan, of course. I think most of our Our listeners know it's the Spring Festival Gala. It's this four-hour kind of ridiculous extravaganza that they hold on TV on Chinese New Year's、mm-hmm. Eve. On, yeah, on CCTV.、Uh, but there was a Shanghai one. This、uh, it was in two thousand nine, ten. Yeah. So,、uh, well, actually, before that.、Uh, yeah. But、so、um, tell us about that. But, I mean, <laughs> we we first started to hear the word a lot in China around I think around two thousand and eight. It suddenly seemed to、mm-hmm. explode into popular consciousness and become something that you saw on the internet and in the media、uh, every day.、Mm-hmm. And at the time, I remember even you know some of my Chinese friends. Friends who weren't that media savvy weren't even a hundred percent sure、mm-hmm. what it meant.、Um, is that timeline、mm-hmm. roughly correct? And I mean, do you do you understand why that it happened at that time? Why was that the time when Shanghai suddenly became a nationwide phenomenon? That's a very good question.、Uh, you were absolutely right that Shanghai was a media buzzword in 2008. In fact, some journalists even named 2008 as the year of Shanghai.、Oh, and、uh, but the discussion of Shanghai actually started before that. And one reason that it got so popular, of course, again, had to do with new media. And this is a moment, if you recall, also a lot of online parodies also took off. So in Two thousand and six. There's Hugo's. Oh yeah,、uh, the bloody case of a steam, steam bun,、yeah. uh, which is a parody of that movie that most of us hate, The Promise, Chen Kaige's film. And、uh, this example kind of goes to show、um, everything labeled Shanghai had this ostensible appeal to the people, and、uh, it's about do it yourself, and oftentimes using the kind of new technologies now at their disposal. And this is why I like to think of Shanghai as simultaneous. A discourse about new media, but、um, whether it's cell phones or the internet,、uh, but also a discourse mediated by these media, as well as their older counterparts, such as television and print. You, you and, mentioned the mobile phone,、uh, mm-hmm. and of course,、yeah. a lot of the phenomenon of the Shanghai、uh, is focused on on the smartphone in particular, the、mm-hmm. Shanghai Ji.、Uh, it's it's probably what comes to mind for most people who, who know the word. You know what Shanghai means.、Uh, what is it about the phone in particular that makes it naturally the focus of any discussion of Shanghai? Yeah, I actually focus on the Shanghai mobile phone because it gets at the material conditions that gave rise to the Shanghai discourse, and we can't talk about the rise of Shanghai Ji or Shanghai cell phones without talking about the city of Shenzhen, the first special economic zone set、Actually. up in '79,、uh, that absorbed a lot of the subcontracting chains for global tech firms, and this was the place where、um, communication scholars Carol Wallace and Jack Chiu have located an informal mobile phone sector, and often the sector makes use of their connections to the global supply chains and make a lot of these cheap. No brand phones that are really at one third of the price of those real brands, and that's when CNN and other media outlets started calling these phones banded cell phones.、Mm-hmm. So going back to the notion of banditry.、Uh, 
but um, some of some of these phones, of course, already have these like fake logos on them, like Nokia or iPhone, yeah. <laughs> uh, and sometimes they have these really outrageous look, um, like shocking look, Leiren, uh, and um, but. But oftentimes, these phones are just uh, kind of functional for a lot of people who can't really afford the real phones, uh, the real brands to begin with. And these people, who are they? Uh, migrant workers who have come from the countryside to work in those supply That's chains. Right. And, and so, they're often actually built by people who are working in the, the, oftentimes, the Alpox continent. Yeah, the, yeah. And um, some of the media sources describe this mode of Shanghai production as sort of a guerrilla warfare uh, because it often it's a modular mode of production, unlike the kind of Fordism that you can associate with mass production. Oh, right. So it's very flexible uh, in responding to market shifts and also government crackdowns. Yeah, so that's sort of the characteristic of the Shanghai mobile phone sector. Uh, so um, in a way, I kind of linked it to what Jack Chu calls the information have less, the term that he uses to describe uh, the working class people who um, uh, may not have as much access to fancy technologies, but certainly uh, can make use of something like the banded phone. Uh, and so that's kind of how Shanghai became a, ban, uh, a brand for the people. In right. a way, and it had a lot to do with the specific conditions of Shenzhen as a site. I found that in discussing Shanghai and reading about it on the internet, they seem to be two very different opinions that would emerge at different times. The one is that Shanghai was kind of a shameful thing, you know, showing that China mm -hmm. lacked all originality and was just ripping off everybody. Uh, but there was another mm -hmm. strong current of thought, which that uh, some of the most creative people and ideas and products coming out of China were Shanghai products, and that was where China's innovation was really happening. Um, sort of along mm -hmm. those lines, and without getting too academic, do you think you could <laughs> sketch for us uh, how you think the, the arc of public discourse about Shanghai uh, has changed mm -hmm. in China uh, in recent years? Uh, well, the... Uh, as you know, the whole Shanghai phenomenon is still unfolding. I, I don't presume to have captured all of it. Uh, and although I do know friends who are continuously looking at it. Uh, but in my book, I decided to just look at three moments of the discourse. So the first moment I've already described above, which is uh, the rise of Shanghai Ji or Shanghai, uh, Shanghai cell phones in Shenzhen. This is prior to 2005. Uh, at that time, uh, there were lots of online online forums uh, out of Shenzhen dedicated to discussing the production and distribution of Shanghai phones. And so in these cases, um, the people who were making this bandit brand, well, uh, they... They were the ones who were the working class, right. and oftentimes they work both in the legit sector and uh, the fake sector, <laughs> and then they're the consumers of this brand, and they're the, the masses that make this brand sort of a market success. But um, I also look at this moment when uh, lots of other online sites like Sohu or even Baidu pick up Shanghai as sort of a 
object of cataloging. And this is when uh, you can think of this kind of uh, technological product got turned into a visual cultural form, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, because there's like, oh, 10 shocking lists of Shanghai phones, that, which ones have the most ridiculous designs, less the most multiple functions. And um, as you recall, this was actually before smartphones were smartphones right, as right, we right, knew right. it. The but actually a lot of Shanghai phones had the functions that we now would call features associated with smartphones. And that had a lot to do with, say, the needs of the information have less because that likely would be the only piece of technology that's really significant, significant in their lives. And so, so after these kind of two moments, um, I, I kind of think about how both of them share this notion of like uh, the maker of this brand. You can't really locate it to a individual per se or even one corporation. Rather, behind this brand is the whole collective. And so this is where it's a very different kind of perception of creativity, if you will, than mm -hmm. the kind of individual-based notion of creativity sanctioned by the intellectual property rights regime. But then I kind of move on to, to look at also how the China Central Television uh, portrays Shanghai. As, as this was 2008. Um, well, that would be, for me, a little bit reductive because there's always the sense that, oh, CCTV is the mouthpiece of the state. Um, what I argue is a little bit different. It's actually the state being in need of CCTV to reinsert itself as sort of the leader of uh, the nation to kind of direct the nation toward branding the nation. Uh -huh. And uh, so the way that they portray Shanghai phones, um, immediately it's about trying to economize this Shanghai culture and try to kind of reincorporate that into uh, making a brand for the nation. So what seems to be left out in this kind of rebranding of Shanghai is the agency of the collective masses that help bring the bandit phone into a market success. So. So I, I see a potential for a, 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 an interesting tension on the one hand be, between a state that would see elements of, of Shanghai culture as being aligned with its own discomfort with the global IPR regime, mm -hmm. uh, seeing them as sort of natural allies in their kind of techno-nationalism mm -hmm. on the one hand. And on the other, this real discomfort that, that they're athwart China's efforts to join that global IPR regime. So I, I, I can see how states... Uh, whether or not CCTV is a proxy for it, how that discourse might change as uh, the state's priorities vis-a-vis -vis the global IP regime change. Mm -hmm. And that that seems like maybe how I I might have approached the story. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's it's definitely there in your book. Um, so, Fan, I, I mean, I'm the kind of non-academic type here, most resistant to academic discourse. Uh, and in fact, I even find <laughs> the word discourse kind of difficult to say <laughs> but, but <laughs> it's so hard to pronounce it's, <laughs> I, I i had too much of it in the 1990s <laughs> at university but um <laughs> maybe i could ask you to give us an example or two of the kind of cultural analyses that you perform um i was thinking perhaps mm -hmm. uh, a few things that our listeners may be familiar with um you know the silk market uh, or xiu shui, xiu shui mm -hmm. jie, 
uh, or maybe the fake Apple store in Yunnan uh, that we mentioned earlier, which uh, a blogger sort of discovered and made famous, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, those are two pretty good examples. Let's go with those. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, did you know that that supposedly fake Apple Store actually sold real products, sure. genuine? Yeah, yeah, I did know that. Yeah, and um, well, Mitt Romney, who mentioned this case to charge China for stealing American IP, it, he didn't really know that part. <laughs> but anyway, uh, well, one of the claims I make when I analyze that case, which is kind of fascinating to me because I'm interested in space. And in that case, you have a case of uh, a space being branded and kind of IP protected. Or in this case, really, um, it's the blogger who just decided to kind of self-enlist to become an advocate for the Apple brand to say that, oh, this is a fake store because it's not a legit retailer that's sanctioned by the corporation itself. Despite the fact that all the products on display, they turn out to be all coming from the actual source. So what to me, this case brings up some kind of contradiction within the intellectual property rights regime. Well, why is it the fact that the Apple Corporation decided not to really pursue any legal measures afterwards? Well, on one hand, you can argue that some of the staircases in the store are patented under Steve Jobs' name. But on the other hand, well, why is it not a good thing to have some free extra marketing personnel in the city like Kunming where a real Apple store has not been set up yet. So in a way, this is a fake store that provided real service to the corporation. So it's really not not really in the interest of corporation to go after it. So that's one of the things that um, I look at in that case. Uh, but um, the Silk Street market is a little bit different. And um, the way that I look at it uh, is to trace um, how this, uh, as you know, started as an informal market in the 80s um, and went on to become a famous bazaar for fakes. But after 2001, uh, when the city was trying to rebrand itself in preparation for the Olympics, uh, they decided to demolish the site to turn it into an eight-story shopping mall. And the idea is to shift this fake orientation into more of a folk or traditional Chineseness uh, being on display for the tourists that will be coming in for the Olympics. And um, what is ironic, though, um, not only did the fake sales continue, uh, the this privatization, what I call, of an urban space in the name of protecting a sort of a public interest to protect an urban landmark, if you will. It's actually making it possible for five global brands, including Gucci and Prada, to file a lawsuit against the developer. And this is very different from when the vendors were just loosely connected um, at the site, and it was actually not possible for global brands to go after them. Uh, so uh, in that in that sense, uh, these struggles over landmark, trademark, and, and IP um, offer another glimpse into the competing notions of culture, uh, whether uh, it's uh, about meaning making or value making. That's Mm, kind of the tension that I bring out in my analysis. One of the things that you talk about in your book is this idea of of cultural 
imperialism. It's a you know a fairly loaded phrase here, but you you raise I thought a pretty intriguing idea that the the new gunships in this cultural imperialism are brands themselves. I mean, you mentioned Gucci and Prada just now, but these are in fact very weak weapons. Oh, can you explain what what you mean by this? Yeah, I don't believe I described brands as weapons per se, yeah, but I, mean, I thought that's weak, a right? quite an interesting way to think about it. Um, I would say that the operation of the brand is simultaneously more subtle and even perhaps more powerful than, say, a military weapon. Uh, the subtle part uh, comes in when you think of the brand as an intangible thing. You can't really buy a brand as a consumer. It's right. only traded on the capital markets. Uh, and it also operates on a global scale in the sense that its production is transnationalized. So think designed in California, assembled in China on the back of your iPhones. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of a indication of that kind of global operation of the brand. Uh, but in part because of all these characteristics, um, it doesn't, when it when it works as a weapon, it doesn't work as an invasion, as say old school imperialism would. Not. Rather, it produces contradictions or contradictory outcomes. And in this case, I'm arguing that it produces nation branding on the one hand and counterfeit culture on the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So perhaps we could talk about nation branding a little bit mm-hmm. more. You know, a major thread of your book is about China's attempts at nation branding. And, uh, you know, Kaiser, you, you've worked at a, a big ad agency, uh, which shall remain nameless, <laughs> uh, in China. Uh, and that uh, amongst, you know, most of the major public relations firms operating out of Beijing and Shanghai, Shanghai uh, work for governments uh, and help to brand states, you know, often starting with tourism. But, you know, some of uh, America's biggest and most respectable PR agencies, one in particular I'm thinking of, has been working for uh, the Russian government, for Putin, trying to make Russia's image in the West more appealing. So, Fan, could you talk about China's efforts to brand itself and uh, what sure. this has to do with Shanghai and with the intellectual property regime? Mm-hmm. The PR shops actually do call that practice branding states. They're very, uh-huh. very upfront about it. Yeah, um, I want to say that the the terms that you've described uh, in relation to Russia and others is the more perhaps typical way of uh, using nation branding, which is describing a set of state branding strategies. Uh, as it is, uh, you can expect, it's really referring to how national governments wanting to project a positive um, national image to the domestic and global audiences at once. Uh, For me, I use this term uh, a little differently. I try to describe a whole set of policies which range from those that foster urban creative clusters uh, to those that promote cultural tourism or those that nurture new media projects like video games or animation production. Uh, So the whole idea is to move away from the more low-end made-in-China model toward a greener service-oriented uh, created-in-China model. And one thing that uh, Shanghai, as banded films, have been able to do, actually, uh, was to 
be some of these like state-supported brands to go out. So if you recall 1997, Jiang Zemin had this notion that all oh, these like major enterprises need to go abroad, go global. Uh, but somehow, uh, Shanghai, uh, Shanghai cell phones in particular, uh, were not only popular in China, like just before 2005, and, and they were very popular in other parts of the developing world, yes, uh, like like India and Africa. And so uh, they formed a sort of a globalization from below, uh, something that the state-sponsored brands were really hoping to do. And uh, so there's sort of a schism <laughs> between the state's intent to globalize the state brands versus the Shanghai success um, in the global market. Okay. And so uh, this is why I argue that the state was in... Was needing to reshape the Shanghai uh, discourse yeah, as yeah. a brand for the nation, and um, so that it can become uh, congruent to this vision of creating China. That is interesting. Um, in South Africa, there's a, a slang word, uh, a, a yeah. Fong Kong. Is it Fong Kong? Oh, you know Fong yes. Kong, right? I was going to ask you about it. Yeah, a friend of mine who studies the China malls in Johannesburg told me about that word. I've been wanting to explore. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So does it really have to do with like fake and Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong means cheap goods made in China, which could be Shanghai uh-huh. or could just be yeah. kind of low quality, but they're cheap. Uh, and yeah. you know, uh, people appreciate them obviously because you know, mm-hmm. twenty years ago you needed a lot of money to buy an umbrella, and now you know you don't. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, it, I remember. Yeah, I visited uh, the China Mall in Johannesburg. That was right before Christmas last year. And then after, on the same afternoon, I went to this mall that's more American style. And of course, the China Mall was like full of people, but the the American Mall was nearly empty. So that was an interesting <laughs> contrast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So lots of people, not just from South Africa, but from other parts of um, African continent, were shopping there. So last night, Jeremy, I I uh, had a drink with a, a guy by the name of Sean who used to uh, do PR for a, a major financial institution and, and now has his own shop here in DC with a lot of Chinese clients. And he says that they're all, all these former Shanghai brands who, who are building cell phones are beating a path to his store. They're all trying to get his services as a digital marketer, as a, as a digital branding guy for the US market. I mean, these are all, uh, I think they're, they're seeing these, these Brands called like like Meizu and Oppo and, and stuff like that who are who are making a mark uh, and who had humble origins as kind of quasi Shanghai or full blown Shanghai shops, really fascinating. And he he encouraged me to look at Kickstarter. He said that if you look at a lot of the uh, the tech areas around Kickstarter campaigns, that it's just filled with these Guangdong province based. Uh, Shanghai shops that are doing some pretty spectacularly interesting technology uh, and trying to escape their Shanghai roots and become like legit brands. But uh, I mean, Fan, <laughs> that really also brings me to a question uh, which we haven't defined exactly, which is I've always felt that there's, there is a clear distinction between Shanghai and, and fake, like pure fake and counterfeit mm-hmm. yeah, is, sure. okay, it, it's, it's pretending to be a Gucci bag, even though it's not made by Gucci. Mm-hmm. Whereas Shanghai brands never actually... I mean, they may have been called Bokia instead of Nokia, but they never actually called mm-hmm. themselves Nokia. They were, they were not trying to mm-hmm. present themselves as exactly a foreign brand. They, it's a different thing from a, a pure fake, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. I think that was actually part of the attraction for the kind of online catalogers that I mentioned before. <laughs> yeah. That they were just intrigued by these manifestation of difference, even though it seems to predicate on some sort of similarity. Still, so、um, yeah, I think it's definitely still worth exploring further、uh, as an aesthetic object. Yeah. So, Van, you teach media and communication studies at UMBC. How, how does China fit into the courses that you actually teach? Are, are most of your students people with significant exposure to China or to? Not、Chinese、really,、uh, but in a way, that's a good thing、yeah. for me. Although I am aff- affiliated with the Asian Studies program、uh-huh. at UMBC, I teach primarily in media and communication studies. And one course I've been teaching a lot is called a media. Communication and globalization.、Um, I help create that course, and、uh, really enjoy teaching it because it invites our students to think about how they participate in globalization through use of media and communication. And、uh, I use a lot of examples from China for obvious reasons. Well,、yeah. uh, one film that、uh, a lot of my students really love is Young and Restless in China. That featured this one rapper from Beijing, Wang Xiaolei, that、uh-huh. they just couldn't. Uh, stop talking about him, <laughs> Jeremy. Have you seen that? <laughs> restless in Beijing, young and restless in China. Young and restless, not restless in Beijing. Not not. Ah、uh, no no no! I haven't. I remember restless in Beijing.、Yeah. I think it was called. But yeah, I remember、uh, that one too. Yeah, no, I have. Yeah, but there's some really interesting footage on like different young people how they are making sense of the world. Uh, uh, but the the rapper is someone that just、uh, my students always invoke him when we talk about questions like, oh, is globalization Americanization and stuff like that.、Uh, but of course, there's a documentary manufactured landscapes,、uh, which I think you might mentioned it on this、Kretinsky, program before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so there's some really great footage in it on、uh, the recycling of e-waste in China. Oh,、wow. and so、um, I think China is just too important a site for the globalization. Of media production, consumption, and recycling to ignore、uh, when it comes to teaching media globalization, and so、um, I really enjoy doing that, and、um, I appreciate the fact that I don't teach in a straight China studies course. And a lot of my students are really interested in exploring topics related in China, even though they may not have the language background. And at the same time, I really enjoy having conversations with them about China in the contemporary world order, and that's something that I've. Attempted to do in my research as well. It's to situate China in contemporary globalization. That's fantastic. I mean, it, it recalls. I think it was Pierre Rexman, whose pen name was Simon Lace, who, who said that you know one of the reasons he studied began to study Chinese was that if you don't understand something about China, how can you possibly understand anything about the world?、Uh, which is something、mm-hmm. that I feel quite strongly is is, is true.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, found, I, I agree.、Um, we're kind of getting to. Towards the end of the podcast, but I'd like to ask you: What are you working on now?、Uh, you know, what interests you these days、uh, as a media communication、yeah. and cultural studies person who's from China and does some work on China, but is working in the United States?、Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm working on a new project called Chimerica, which looks at、uh, what I call the imaginary amalgamation of China and America in a number of transnational media artifacts. So, some of the examples you might think of: the cult. TV series Firefly, oh yeah, and、sure. Netflix series House of Cards, season two, 
especially, um, or any a number of Hollywood sci-fi films that feel the need oh, to I include totally some China. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> right. So whether it's Gravity or The Martian. So I guess I'm really uh, increasingly interested in how China is, is imagined in the U.S. popular culture and politics, and、uh, trying to think about how the transnational media flows made that kind of imagination impactful in the political arena. And well,、uh, when you're when you're ready, you know, come talk to us about this. This is just、yeah. the sort of thing we'd love to chat with you about. Of course,、That's、I want to pick your、topic. brain on it too. Actually, yeah.、Uh, another thing I'm really interested in,、um, as Jeremy was mentioning before, China Mall in Johannesburg. I'm really interested in China's growing presence in the global South,、uh, especially after that conference to South Africa. So that's another thing that I like to pick your brain on as well. Well, pick away.、Uh, we're going to go get dinner afterward, and we can start that conversation. <laughs> anyway, Fan, it has been great to have you on the show. It's a pity, Jeremy, that you weren't able to join here. It would have been fun. We're all going to go eat at the、uh, damn,、like、damn you, damn you all. Get out of the plane now. <laughs> before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina dot com. You can follow Sup China on Twitter at at Sup China News and on Facebook at Facebook dot com slash Sup China News. Recommendations, Jeremy. Why don't you kick us off with some? Okay, I, I, I've been unpacking some of my books、uh, from China, and I think I may have recommended one of these in in the past, but it's worth、uh, another recommendation. These are books. It's very different from our subject of the podcast today、uh, about wildlife. So,、uh, three books. One is a guide to the mammals of China, edited by Andrew T. Smith and Xie Yan. Uh, who's listed as Yen Xie、uh, on the book and published by Princeton University Press.、Uh, so it's a color color illustrations of、uh, pretty much all the mammals found in China, together with very detailed notes about、uh, where they're found,、um, their habits, their diet,、uh, and、uh, all kinds of things that you would need to identify mammals.、Um, And if you're interested in that, you'd probably also be interested in a field guide to the birds of China、uh, by John McKinnon, Karen Phillips, in collaboration with Ho Fanchi, which was published by Oxford University Press.、Uh, and it's quite a thick book. It covers the whole country, you know, from Xinjiang to the forests of Yunnan to the uh, big uh, wastes, uh, wintry wastes of Dongbei. Uh, so, if you live in Beijing,、uh, as I used to, I'd also recommend a Chinese book called Beijing Yanyao Tujian, which is a a photo based guidebook to the birds of Beijing, published by Beijing Chuban Shu, Beijing、uh, Press, I think, and edited by a fellow named Gao Wu.、Uh, so, those three books. Excellent, excellent. Okay, Fan, what do you have for us? Well, since、uh, G twenty is around the corner, and I happen to just have just returned from my hometown Hangzhou, I figure I would just offer two recommendations from my hometown. Okay.、Uh, okay. One is a bookstore, Ah、uh, Zhongshu Ge Xingguang Dian, which is located in the new city, Qiantang Xincheng, which is different from the Westlake.、Um, And、um, it's one of those like illusion bookstores, if you will, like lots of mirror designs in it.、Um, to me, it really beats 
the Apple Store, fake or real. <laughs> uh, another recommendation is the restaurant, a、uh, new branch of the old restaurant, really,、uh, Wei Zhuang, which is a branch of the old restaurant called Zhi Wei Guan, and、um, it's located right by the West Lake. And I imagine it would be nice in fall weather to sit outside and look at the West Lake while you enjoy some Hangzhou cuisine. And、um, a week ago,、uh, well,、uh, two weeks ago when I was there, I realized、um, while eating lunch there. That like how much of Hangzhou cuisine was lake to table, like before farm to table was the thing. Yeah, and so yeah. we've been talking a lot about fakes here. And if you're really up for authenticity, quote unquote, well, that's what I would recommend: Hangzhou cuisine in Weizhou. Great, excellent recommendations.、Uh, my recommendation for today is a a book, and specifically an audio. Book.、Uh, it's called Underground Airlines. The author is Ben H. Winters. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's a work of、uh, alternative history of of sort of one of those. What would it have been like? And the the premise is that the Civil War was never fought in the United States. Slavery persisted、uh, in what what are you know in, in in this book are four the four hard states of the South.、Uh, it's it's been it's ended in Georgia, but it's in. Uh, the merged entity of North and South Carolina, and in a couple of other states, slavery persists, and it it's,、um, follows. It's a first-person account written in a kind of noir style about a、uh, himself, a freed slave who is working as a fugitive slave catcher.、Uh, he's a very interesting personality. The writing is excellent. It's it's written very much like a screenplay. The narration is phenomenally good. It's narrated by a guy named William. Demerit, and I highly recommend it. It's a relatively short、uh, read, so next time you're taking a five-hour, six-hour-long drive, pop that one in. It's、uh, it's thrilling from beginning to end. So who's the non-academic type again? You guys are making me look bad. <laughs> I'm not recommending books. You guys are all I'm, about I'm books. I'm recommending an audio. <laughs> it's sort of a, a fun one.、Uh, you know, it's sort of in the spirit of of.、Um, The Plot Against America by Philip Roth, you know,、uh, and、uh, again, it's one of those books that it's maybe a good, timely one to read in 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 the age of Donald Trump. <laughs> Thanks, young Thank man. You. It was just、uh, wonderful to have you here, and and we look forward to hearing more from you. My pleasure. Thank you.、Uh, Jeremy, man, good to talk to you. Yeah, a pleasure.、Uh, once again, a shame I couldn't be there in person, but I hope the sound is good enough. I'm sure it will be. We tested it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, myself, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, Amadeo Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina.、Uh, drop us an email; we love hearing from you at Seneca at SubChina dot com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook dot com slash Seneca Podcast, and of course, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Seneca Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.